1: It's Rick Tittle!
2: Well,
3: hello there. Another episode of Titillating Sports on the Sports Byline USA Broadcasting Network is upon you, the listener. That's right, you. Not us. Not me. You, the listener. Welcome in. Dominic Jimenez, I'm in for Rick Tittle. Speaking of Rick Tittle, he'll be on the show in about five minutes. Give us an updated report uh, from Arizona on the World Baseball Classic. USA with a Mercy Rule win over Canada, and we weren't, we were talking on the show yesterday, we weren't sure if the U.S. were going to beat Canada, and they jumped all over single A pitcher, I forget his first name, but his last name's Brat B-R-A-T-T, they gave up like five runs in the first, poor kid, but go USA, yeah. Uh, hello to all the listeners, however you might be listening to us today, whether it's on iHeart, TuneIn, iTunes, you're listening to it after the fact in a podcast, or if you're listening uh, live on the homepage, sportsbyline.com, you clicked that Listen Live button, or if you're listening on the American Forces Radio Network, somewhere around our wonderful world, welcome in. In addition to... Another appearance by Rick. It's weird. Guest hosting your own show. How about that? We'll have uh, in about an hour, we'll have J.D. Sharp talk some more NCAA tournament. And in about half an hour, we'll have Daria Payank, bowler. She's been on before. This is her second appearance. She was on the uh, PBA Go Bowling show over the weekend with Verity Crawley, Kyle Troop, veterans of the show. Made it to the finals. Lost to Kyle Troop, but she made it to the finals. So we've also got Salesforce talking about an hour and a half with Karen Lyle uh, at 40 after in the next hour. I'm Dominic Mendes. This is Tudor Lightning Sports.
4: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You just bought a home in the suburbs, but no one told you about all the birds, specifically this one, who seems to be calling out Roy. Roy. But who exactly is Roy. And why doesn't he ever respond? Maybe Roy is just bird speak for save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. I guess until Roy answers, we'll never know. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
5: If you're moving to another state, you're getting a fresh start in a brand new town. And when you choose a moving company to help get your valuable possessions to that new home of yours, you want somebody that's going to take care of your things like you would. That's why you need to call Colonial Van Lines. They're America's number one moving company for a reason. Because they'll take care of your things like they would their possessions. They'll use caution so nothing gets damaged. And they won't treat you like a number, they'll treat you like a friend. And when you call now on a qualified move across state lines, they'll give you a $250 discount move your things the right way call colonial van lines now for a free quote
0: call now to learn more about this special 250 dollars long distance move discount 800-847-0225 800-847-0225 800-847-0225 that's 800-847-0225
6: remember in the beginning when you first started to build a life for you and your family
8: This is Titillating Sports with Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Only titillating sports with Dominic Menes for a couple more days. And right now, it's just titillating sports because Rick Tittle joins us. That's right, Rick. Get it? Tittle? Titillating sports. It's his show. I'm just here keeping the seat warm. Uh, Rick's down in Arizona. We're going to talk a little more World Baseball Classic. Rick, how's it going?
1: Pretty good. Your rejoinder Sounds like a children's show. It Sounds like I should have a puppet.
3: Uh okay. Yeah, Mario, very enthusiastic. That's uh although I will say the song is a jaw rule song, very much not appropriate for a children's show. Uh, but that's oh, okay. neither neither here nor there. What is here and there is uh Team USA. We weren't sure if they were gonna beat Canada yesterday, other than being optimistic Americans, and uh it was never in doubt. Uh tell me a little bit about uh what the atmosphere was like because you didn't have the huge Mexican contingency in the stadium and obviously the U.S. dropped nine in the first inning against the poor single-A pitcher from Canada, including a Mike Trout home run. What was the atmosphere like in that first inning?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, the Mexico game was, you know, I'd say 75% Mexican fans, and they were going wild, especially when they put the beat down on we, us, Americans. But, So, the crowd wasn't as big, I'd say probably, but still two thirds full. So, I'd probably say about, you know, 30,000 people there. And it was, uh, you know, Lance Lynn, you know, he's not, you know, Walker Bueller or Shane Beaver or Max Free, but I thought I felt a little bit better about our chances with Lance Lynn um, than Nick Martinez the day before. But I look and I see this guy, Brat. Not Benjamin, but I think Mitch Bratt. I looked it up, and he was from Low A. And this kid got shelled. And you, you know, as you said, uh, Trout hit a monster home run on him. Arenado, Betts, everybody's hitting off this guy. Why wouldn't they feast on an A-ball pitcher? And then Ernie Witt relieves him. with this guy Frewer, who's not the Milwaukee Frewers, but this guy Frewer. Who's also an A ball pitcher and he hits, bets, who's batting around. And I kinda thought because Canada's gonna play Columbia in less than two hours now, they had such a short turnaround, I almost felt like Ernie Witt was waving the white flag on us. I mean, how his team never had a chance and he let those A ball pitchers get feasted upon. So it was a curious thing I think to not even try to win that game but I think that was the feeling.
3: You know, we were talking yesterday about how Team USA could turn things around after the just absolute beatdown from at the hands of Mexico and one of the things you said is a lineup change. Well, you were saying, let's see if Mark let's see if Mark DeRosa will do a lineup change and we saw Tim Anderson at second base. He's one of the few Americans who's consistently hitting uh, obviously, it paid out, but do you like that move going forward? And uh, tip of the cap to DeRosa for that move?
1: Well, you know what's interesting about that is that was the first game he's ever played at second base since high school. Wow. So that was a, that was a risky thing to do, but he felt I need an extra bat in the lineup. And, you know, he, he put, um, you know, McNeil on the bench. I think what's interesting for me is that being on the field, and I, I, this happens with me in professional sports. Guys always look bigger than I thought or smaller than I thought. Tyler O'Neill, as I was at DP, is a very good center fielder. He uh, looks like he's about five foot two, built like a fire hydrant. Um, they had this kid number seventy four, young batting cleanup, and he hit a home run off Lance Lynn. He, I think, is going into Double A next year. It's a weird lineup that they had. Freddie Freeman, I could not believe how skinny he was, and he's another guy who's been on my show. But, man, Freddie Freeman is skinny, and I never expected him to be. I thought he'd be built more like Matt Olson or something like that. But the guy that really surprised me was, you know, I've, I've been on NFL fields for years, but the most barrel-chested guy I have ever seen is this crazy tall dude with a mustache, and I thought, who the hell is that? I had to look it up. It was Miles Mikulik. Wow. I mean, yeah, I, I had no idea the guy, because you're just watching the game, everybody's in uniform, so I'm, that's what I'm always intrigued by, guys who look like nothing, and then guys who look bigger than you thought, it's like when I first met Andre Agassi, I'm 6'2", and I'm looking him in the eye, I thought he was like an Oompa Loompa, and so anyway, just a couple of things to, you know, you look, and that's the thing I love about baseball, is you can have a fat guy or a nerd with glasses, if you can play, you can play.
3: Yeah, and I know I know your feelings on combined no-hitters and whatnot, but it was pretty cool. We saw yesterday a combined perfect game from Team Puerto Rico, and to be fair, it was a forced combined game, uh, perfect game because you know, the starter had to be pulled because of pitch count rules. Is that something that's cool to you where the guy was forced to leave and they still completed the perfect game, or you're like, nah, it's still not for me?
1: Well, if he got yanked and that wasn't the rule, that would suck. But it's, it's the rule, so, you know, rules are rules. And I thought it was pretty cool. We were all watching it in the press box um, before the, uh, the USA game. And, you know, you feel sorry for Israel to get humiliated like that. Um, this guy, LaVarnway, I remember him when he was on the A's for a cup of coffee. He's a real nice guy. But the thing I thought was interesting, speaking of former A's, is somehow, someway, Danny Valencia was on Team Israel, so... Wow. Um, G- Jewish or Israeli heritage. And remember, he uh, punched Billy Butler, and Billy Butler is the first person in history who had to apologize for getting beat up. <laughs> so it was <laughs> the, my favorite, just as an aside, my favorite Danny Valencia story. I don't know if it's true or not, but when the A's traded for him, uh, apparently the conversation with Bob Melvin was, hey, you're going to play a lot. And Danny Valencia said, I'm an everyday player. And Bob said, well, we'll see. And he said, no, 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 we'll see. I play every day or I'm not coming.
3: Wow, did, I know he didn't end up playing every day, but did he he did end up coming, though, right? Like he just tried to posture he, himself into playing time and it didn't work.
1: He came. He's he was a pretty good player. And he was a decent hitter, but apparently, you know, he was one of those uh, red butts.
3: Got it. Uh, a couple more questions for Rick Tittle down in Arizona uh, before I switch things up and and ask you a couple questions about your Raiders. Uh, I want to see one of the cool things that I love about the World Baseball Classic is you do get these guys who are not major leaguers, who some who are not even in the minor leagues, guys who have other jobs when they're at home. And the cool thing, we saw Nicar- Nicaraguan pitcher Duque Hebert strike out Juan Soto, uh, Rafael Devers, and Julio Rodriguez in the ninth inning of a game. And an hour later, the Tigers signed him. How cool is that?
1: That's stuff of dreams. That's just a Hollywood story right there. And and I'm glad some team did sign him up. It's like, you can strike out those three guys. You can strike out one. Good for you. Tell your grandkids. You strike out all three. Come into camp. See what you got. I think that's outstanding.
3: All right. We're switching things up here. The Raiders, your Raiders, Rick, have a new quarterback. In my eyes, it's a lateral at best move. How are you feeling about Jimmy G?
1: Well, I know you very well, and you you never cared for Jimmy G as most Niners fans did. Uh, He's a cheaper version of Carr. This probably means now they're going to take Richardson or Levis at seven, and then sit him. I hope it's not Levis, but really I hope it's not both. But you know, Jimmy G has the second highest winning percentage in Niners history. He took his team to a Super Bowl. But just the Raiders have a patchwork offensive line, and Jimmy G it uh, doesn't matter how good-looking he is, he can't stay healthy. And, and he does throw some bonehead picks. So to me, this is a less durable version of Derek Carr. The only positive would be that there's more money now to sign other guys because he's cheaper. But it's nothing I'm jumping up and down about. I will say it's better than drafting Levis or Richardson and starting him because the Raiders do have, I think, <laughs> this is – kinda of weird to say for a team that didn't make the playoffs, but with all that talent on offense, they do have a chance. So with Garoppolo they, they they've given themselves a chance, but for him to stay healthy is a tall order.
3: And you mentioned the money to sign other guys about an hour ago they signed Jacoby Myers, former Patriots wide oh, receiver, Lord. to a three year thirty three million dollar deal. So oh, no. uh, Oh, that's there, stupid. There's that. <laughs> We've been speaking with Rick Tittle. You can check it out every every day, Monday through Friday, nine a.m. to noon Pacific here on Tittleating Sports. He'll be back on Thursday. Rick, uh, enjoy the rest of your trip. Uh, go Team USA. Take care.
1: Thanks, Tom. Talk to you soon. Mate. Right, we'll see you.
3: It is Rick Tittle down in Arizona, We're talking a little World Baseball Classic and a little Raiders too, because they're in the news. So I'm Dominic Mendes. This is Tittleating Sports.
2: We'll
0: 800-725-1651. That's 800-788-1495. Life insurance is one of those
2: things that just about everybody needs, but few people actually have. Hey, if you die unexpectedly without life insurance, guess what? You'll leave your family with even a bigger mess.
8: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back to the show. Dominic Jimenez here. We've got an open segment before we welcome back to the show professional bowler Daria Pionk. You can give me a call 1-800-878-PLAY, 1-800-878-7529, and I will click some buttons and we can have a conversation and we can chat. Huh? How's that sound? It's funny. So, uh, you know, Rick just there mentioned my feelings towards Jimmy Garoppolo. And make no mistake about it, when, when the 49ers traded for him, I was ecstatic. Obviously, I didn't know a lot about him other than he was Tom Brady's backup. But there was always the talk about Jimmy is going to be the one that takes over for Brady. And if the Patriots felt so strongly about him... Why wouldn't I sign me up if they think that he's good enough to take over for Tom Brady, I'm in. who Who am I to argue with Bill Belichick about talent evaluation? I'm nobody and I'm not gonna do that. I'm just I'm not yeah, I didn't be stupid. So I was all aboard when they traded, all in when they traded for him. He shows up. He takes the exact same team that struggled all year. They win five games in a row to close out the season. I was making the jokes, Jimmy GQ, Jimmy Guapo-lo. Guapo, Lo Guapo's handsome in Spanish. All, all of the funny memes, all, all the jokes, the the plays on his wor- uh, on his name, all of it. I was all in. And I have to give Jimmy credit. He he helped turn this team around. They were successful for long stretches of time with Jimmy behind under center. But there were just a few things that were maddening. One of them being his health. He he got hurt a fair amount. Especially the last few years when this is a team built to win a Super Bowl. And And then the other ones is... One of the other flaws is that his his shortcomings, and don't get me wrong, every player's got shortcomings of some type. I'm not saying Jimmy had flaws, so I didn't like him. No, it was that the flaws reared their ugly head at inopportune times. Well, I can think of a lot of times where Jimmy panicked in the pocket and I don't want to say he gave up trying to pass the ball, but he would try to kind of sort of scramble, but Jimmy's not a quarterback who's going to be super successful scrambling. He's not. He's athletic, but he's not a running quarterback. It's just not who he is, and I'm, I'm, I don't hold that against him. A lot of quarterbacks aren't going to do a lot if you force them out of the pocket. But it was the, the panic in the pocket that would drive me crazy. He would still have time But he'd bail out and try to check down Or he'd bail out and try to get away I think, obviously I'm just here talking about what I observe I could never do a fraction of what Jimmy Garoppolo does My quarterback career ended in, like, middle school (laughs) It's just a fact who knows what would have happened if I had played football freshman year of high school. I, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be Jimmy Garoppolo. Fairly con- Very confident in that. But it's for a team that, yes, he helped them turn around. Yes, he helped get them there. But for a team that is ready to win, you needed him to shine when the lights were were on the team at their brightest and you didn't get that with Jimmy. I don't want to call him a game manager. But Jimmy Garoppolo, at least with the 49ers was more likely to lose you a game because of a mistake than he was to go out there and win a game for you. Now, yes, he obviously had some amazing games. The one the first one that I think of is the game against the Saints, where it with the playoff game against the Saints. It was a shootout and Jimmy was up to the task. To fight back. But one of the things, and it's obviously a product of Kyle Shanahan's offense, is I know a lot of the huge Jimmy supporters in the later years, like like he was here for more than six years, but he was here for six years in San Francisco. One of the things was, look how many yards he threw for. Look how many touchdowns he threw. And yes, the stats looked nice. But here's the other thing. The 49ers consistently led the NFL in yards after catch. Now, yes, sometimes Jimmy would put the ball perfectly on a slant to Debo or Ayuk or he'd hit Kittle and stride down the middle and they would be in a good position to take off. But at the same time, a lot of those yards were gained because you had players who could make big plays after catching the ball. You had Debo, you had Ayuk, you had Kittle. Even check could plant a guy in the ground every now and then. You had Raheem Mostert with his speed out of the backfield, Elijah Mitchell. I think Jimmy played with Christian McCaffrey too much, so I'm not going to use him as an example, but in, in under normal circumstances, he would be another perfect example of the talent around Jimmy Garoppolo. And I mentioned to Rick. It feels like a pretty lateral move. Yes, you're saving a lot of money, and I briefly talked about that yesterday when the news first came out about Garoppolo. I was like, oh, okay. He's making like a third of what Derek Carr's making. Okay, that's a lot of money that they're saving there. But in terms of talent, I think I'd rather have Derek Carr. Not by a lot. It's not... It's not an obvious thing. I've been thinking about it since yesterday. I'm like, what? Which, which, which player would I really rather have? And I, I think the answer is Derek Carr. But it's not like it's obvious to me. It's the answer is Derek Carr. Duh. Hello. No. It's 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 pretty close. And I guess when you do factor in the costs, the contract size, the salary. I can get why the Raiders went with Garoppolo. But from a talent perspective, it feels like they didn't gain a whole lot. When I saw a meme, and it had Bleacher Report's betting page um, watermarked, so I think it's real, but I didn't look hard enough to see if it was real. But the odds for the Raiders to win the Super Bowl after Derek Carr, but prior to Jimmy Garoppolo, were plus 4,000. And after signing Jimmy Garoppolo, their odds were still plus 4,000. I don't know exactly how that works when the team doesn't have a quarterback. And then they get a quarterback who has won in this league. And all of a sudden, the odds don't change? I, I don't think that's right. But it was funny because it's. It, I'm a, I'm a 49er fan. Thankful for Jimmy to help springboard the thing, the the team going forward. But I'm kind of I was kind of over it. I was ready to move on. Very similarly to the Warriors and Mark Jackson. Thank you, Mark Jackson, for getting the Warriors to play defense, for instilling defensive values. But I think we've hit our peak with what we can do with you. And bye. They got a new guy. They won some championships. I'm hoping that's the case with the 49ers. And I don't know the e- the Eagles. Where did that come from? I don't know the Patriots' offensive system well enough. And I'm going to assume it's maybe not similar to the 49ers, but obviously it's going to be catered to Jimmy Garoppolo because their head coach is Josh McDaniels, who was the offensive coordinator in New England. So uh, there's got to be some familiarity there. I wonder how Devontae Adams is going to feel about that. Because it's a lateral-ish move. But his boy was Derek Carr. So how is he feeling? And then they go out and sign um, Jacoby Myers from the Patriots. He'll be their number two receiver. I think Mac Hollins, who was their number two guy last year, is a free agent. Wouldn't surprise me if he leaves, but I know they like him. Actually, Matt Collins has been on the show with Rick a couple times. Does great work with the Special Olympics. They go and catch Kobe Myers. He's a solid receiver, young guy, so there's room for him to grow. And then I think if they if they do go and get a quarterback like Richardson or Levis, uh, I think they're picking ninth, eighth. That gives them gives him time to develop. And we've seen Jimmy can handle the looking over your shoulder at the bench, there's a young raw product, this is your team for now. We've seen that he can handle it in a professional manner because it's exactly what he's done for a couple years in San Francisco. They drafted Trey Lance, They, they traded a lot of draft capital to move up and get Trey Lance. So I would say the pressure was on Jimmy Garoppolo more in San Francisco than it will be in Las Vegas in terms of having a young quarterback who's raw behind him because this is going to be a first-round pick, also a top-ten pick, but it's not going to be somebody the Raiders gave up a bunch of picks to go up and get. Jimmy knows what the situation is going into. It's not a surprise, oh, we're going to go get Trey Lance. Wait, what? All right, I'm Dominic Jimenez. On the other side, pro bowler Daria Pionk will join me on the show again. We'll talk some bowling with her. And then later on, we got some open lines. I'm Dominic Jimenez. This is Tittle Laden Sports.
8: Wendy's 2 for $6 lets you mix and match some of our best items, like... Dave single with a 10-piece crispy nugs. Medium strawberry lemonade with a spicy chicken sandwich. Spicy chicken with a Dave single. Dave single with a strawberry lemonade. Strawberry lemonade, strawberry lemonade. If you're into that. Chicken Sam, crispy nugs. Crispy nugs, strawberry lemonade. Dave's, Dave's, nugs, nugs, Sam, Sam. Whew. Pick what you want at a price you want. <clears throat>
2: Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's two for six. For a limited time, price and participation may vary. in U.S. Wendy's on the card only. Single item at regular price. Stop overpaying and call right now.
0: Paid for by Steel Man Pills. 800-965-1295. 800-965-1295. 800-965-1295. That's
10: 800-965-1295. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so...
0: 800-760-1845.
2: This is Ron Var. Be sure to check out Sports Byline and Octagon's outstanding eight-part podcast series, "Behind the Barrier: Voices from the Negro Leagues." Hear Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and others share their stories of the Negro Leagues, the challenges the players faced, and the importance of Negro League baseball to the game's history. "Behind the Barrier" is available now on the iHeart Podcast Network and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Pandora.
8: Now, back to titillating sports on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back to the show. Dominic Jimenez here. And, you know, as you know, it's, it's no secret at this point. I'm a bowler. I love watching bowling. I love getting to chat with the pro bowlers. And I'm very excited to welcome in my next guest who is a pro bowler, second time on the show, and that is Daria Payong. She's a pro bowler on the PWBA Tour. She was a 2017 PWBA Rookie of the Year. She also reached the finals in the Go Bowling PBA NASCAR Invitational at the Phoenix raceway over the weekend with her NASCAR partner, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. They fell to Kyle Troop and Eric Amarola in the final. Daria, welcome back to the show. Um, What is it like getting to participate in kind of a fun cross-sport celebrity bowling event where it gives you a chance to have some fun, uh, compete in a different manner, a little less one-on-one pressure. You get to promote the sport and you got to beat your good friend, Verity Crawley, in the the first round there. What was that event like for you?
11: Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, by the way, and I love how you pronounce my last name. It was perfect, and it does not happen very often, so oh, good thank job. You. Uh, being on that NASCAR PBA show was a really cool event. You know, I just really love bowling on TV because the atmosphere is different, and with the events like that, that the goal is to promote the two sports, NASCAR and PBA. It just has so much vibrancy in the atmosphere. It's it, such an amazing environment to go with, all in and the and the people there and everybody that was helping with making that show happen just made it such a good experience. And on the top of that, all the NASCAR drivers, I've never met them in person other than Eric ariola uh, They were so nice. Uh, they were so down to earth. So just being around them and just them being so nice and so cool, it, it was great.
3: And now... Uh... In, in Poland, where you're from, growing up, was, was racing a, a big sport in Poland at all as you were growing up? Or was it kind of your first introduction to it when you, when you came over here uh, for college?
11: Uh, actually, in Poland, when I was a little younger, before I went to, to the college in the States, Formula One was really big. Hmm. And one of the reasons of why Formula One was very big, it was because one of the best drivers at the time, Robert Kubica, was Polish. So, he was always having top finishes, and he was always against Schumacher, and I remember always watching him, and the fun fact is that Robert, he used to be a bowler, so wow. I've known him since I was super small, and I remember him explaining to me why he doesn't bowl with the thumb. Uh, he said that he cannot bowl with the thumb because of the season when he's racing, his thumbs get swollen, and then uh, it gets smaller, so it's always a problem, so he just switched to a two-finger bowling shot, and... I remember we have all knew him before he was famous, and he was saying, like, oh, I'm going to go to Italy, and I'm going to race, and stuff. And then suddenly, boom, he was everywhere, all over the news. And we haven't seen him much bowling anymore with us, but there was that one tournament that he showed us on the European bowling tour, and he was just, like, you know, the biggest star ever. But the fun fact is that we're bowling at that tournament when I was, I think, over 16 years old. And there is something called Esperado, when you bowl the whole tournament and you did not make it to the finals, but they give you like one last chance to bowl one game and the two highest scores make it part of the finals. Mm. And I remember Robert did me play one pin to make it to the finals, and I fell short by a pin. And then he came up to me being like, hey, Daria, you know what? Like, I cannot bowl the finals anyway, because I have to go to Italy tomorrow. I was just bowling for fun." So, you can still make it to the finals because I'm going to resign. But the rules did not allow it. Because if he was not going to show up at the finals, it was not the next person that was going to make it. So, it very- I still remember that, how bitter I was. I was like, why would you bow if you could not even make it to the finals? But yeah. I'm glad it worked out.
3: My- glad it worked yeah, out for that you. Well,
11: it yeah
3: All right uh in you know in Poland you basically won every youth and adult tournament before you were even an adult so take me through a little bit about that situation where you dominate in your country you compete internationally in Europe and then you make the decision to leave home and come stateside to go bowl in college at Weber international. What was that process like for you was it t- it had to be tough right
11: uh It wasn't tough because I loved it. Um, Going to the States was a lot tougher than I anticipated the first few months, Uh, but maybe because I didn't overthink it, that's why I did it, because knowing what I was going to feel and go through the first month, I definitely would not have done it because I think I would just be too scared. But because I was doing everything last minute, I just didn't overthink it much. And, you know, that's how everything happens. But going back to Poland... I don't know if many of our listeners know, but bowling is quite of a new sport in Poland because the first bowling center was built in 1999, and I was born in 1993, so I was six years old when I first walked into the bowling center. And I remember my dad explaining to me what we're going to do that the afternoon, and he would be like, yeah, you're going to have a bowling ball, you're going to have to throw to the pins. And I remember my small head could not comprehend what he was talking about. <laughs> like, I've never seen that sport in my life before. And I just remember walking through that door and seeing the lights the music and I just, literally, I fell in love. And I could not stop talking about bowling. I could, st- could not stop practicing bowling at home with like, you know, the basketball or some other ball that I could find. And slowly we got more into it. You know, the first league, the first little tournament, I was always finishing last because I was always the youngest, competing against my mom. You know, I was like, oh, who's going to finish last? And slowly I just, got better and better I think it's because of my obsession with it and there wasn't that many people who were that obsessed uh, looking back I don't think that anybody had as much passion passion to me as I did but I was also quite lucky that at the age of 12 I was introduced to a coach that got his certificate in Belgium where the sport of bowling was a lot bigger so he had a lot of more knowledge about the fundamentals of bowling and he introduced me to bowling as a true sport he, he did the bowling, the practice regime. We had practices always scheduled at certain times, certain days of the week. I always knew what I was going to be doing at the practices. And at the end of the practice, I was given like just one game to bowl for a score because everything else was just a physical game and getting me ready for tournament. So I think I've gotten to know bowling for the side that many bowlers don't. I started to practice it as a sport from a very young age. I was very used to doing drills, the practice regime. I knew I knew I needed to be very strong. And because my dad is an ex bodybuilder, he really was pushing me to work on my grip. And I think that's one of the reasons why my hand is really, really strong. And that's also one of the reasons why I can throw a more powerful ball because that's always something I really wanted to do. I never had a gender Uh, ideas of bowling that women are not able to do something while men can. I never had that in my head. So when I saw a guy bowling the way I wanted to bowl, like Tommy Jones, I'm like, I'm going to bowl like Tommy Jones. And nobody could stop me, you know. I wanted to do it, and I was striving for it. So I think that all of that made me a bowler that I am today
3: we're speaking with Daria Pajank, pro bowler on the PWBA tour here in the states 2017 PWBA rookie of the year and Daria tell me what it's like getting to represent Poland in international competition is is it a sense of pride and you mentioned it didn't bowling as a sport in the country didn't take off until you know, the 2000s, essentially, because you didn't have any bowling alleys. So do you get kind of a sense of pride of being a bit of a role model as well when you are uh, representing Poland in international competition?
11: Yeah, it's really cool, you know. It's really cool to have Poland on my back. And that's where I started. I started to travel internationally because I had won national championships, youth national championships, and I was being sent to bowl the European youth championships when I got a chance to see all the better bowlers, older bowlers, and learn from there. I get motivated. So being on the national team is the reason why I have become a better bowler, because they opened my eyes to the whole world. Before that, before so, I was only bowling in Poland and some events around Europe that my parents could ask to send me or come with me. But it's not being able of... Uh, being a part of the Team Poland, I would have never seen the bowling as it really is. And it opened my eyes. So now that I can give back to our country and I just won a medal at the European Championship this past year in October, give, being able to give back to them after so many years of them just sending me for experience and sending me to just get uh, you know, not qualify and just try to, to do as best well as I can without even having any chance for the medal. And now me being able to go and fight for the medal for my country is is a payback I'm very happy I, I can do for my country.
3: And what is it about getting to travel and see new places? That's very cool, obviously. But you have such a passion for promoting the sport. I, I've seen you, you know, some of the, the trips you've made, and it's it's always about you promoting the sport. It's not about, you know, hey, I'm going to get more exposure. Hey, I'm getting popularity. No, it's it's almost always you wanting to improve other people or, or spark if the passion for the sport in other people. Where does that come from, wanting to share your passion so much with others? Uh, it's, it's
11: a dream come true. I never thought I would be in the place I am right now. And it's more so of the fact that I I was raised in Poland and I was there for 19 years of my life before I went to the university. So perception of the sport of bowling that I have within my heart is a lot different than perception of bowling that people might have that are either, uh, you know, from from time to time bowlers or don't bowl at all. So I felt like I'm on a mission to show people the other side of bowling that they don't see, that we practice a lot, that we need to do drill, that we don't ball for score, that there's so many different skills that we need to obtain. You know, we have to be able to throw the ball 10 times the same, throwing it very fast, but also throwing it very slow and throwing it medium speed, being able to hook the whole lane or throwing straight. It's really not an easy job to do. And on the top of that, we need to be strong and have a lot of stamina because we bowl all day. So in order to last the whole day, your body needs to be strong. So... The way I see bowling, it might be a lot different than others do, and I see it as a full-time sport, and as something that you can only get better if you really, really commit to it, and just being able to show my perception of the sport to others is something that really drives me. I want people to look at me and be like, yeah, she is an athlete, you know? I want them to see that, and that's how I'm trying to bring exposure to our sport, and that involves a lot of traveling and promoting, not just sport itself, but also the brands that, um, that I am sponsored by, I meaning they help me do what I do. Because if not them, I wouldn't be able to afford being a full-time professional bowler. So by doing all the traveling, I am giving back to everybody who has been supporting me, like my sponsors, but also to the sport that I'm just so thankful for.
3: We've got about 30 seconds left, Darius. So I'll ask you one more quick question. What's your favorite country that you've had a chance to travel to so far? And what country do you want to visit next is kind of on your bucket list?
11: Uh, Thailand is going to be the country I will always, always tell everyone to go to. It's amazing food, amazing massage. Boeing is big, it's awesome. People are very nice. And the country I would love to go to is, is China. I've only been to China for eight hours because I had a long layover. <laughs> But I would love to go to China and bowl and some of the events that they have today. The Spoiler bowling is really big there as well. But I would like to try their food and just see their culture.
3: There we go. There is Daria Payank. Remember, check her out on the PWBA tour. She's even bowled in some of the PBA events and done extremely well in those, too. She was the 2017 PWBA Rookie of the Year also. And, Daria, I know you have a huge social media following. Where can fans follow you if they want to kind of follow your journey as you promote the sport of bowling? I
11: think Instagram would be the best them to follow me. But I'm very active on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. So anywhere you follow me, you're
3: going to be quite up to date with, with the stuff that I do on an everyday basis. There it is, Daria Payong. Daria, thank you again for taking some time and joining me. Always a pleasure getting to chat with you, and best of luck on uh, the upcoming season and your continued uh, good travels. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I'm Dominic Jimenez. More on the other side on titillating sports.
8: Titillating sports continues on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back into the show, closing down this hour. My thanks again to Daria Pyonk for joining me. It's it's funny. I didn't get a chance to ask her cuz just every this is the second time I've had her on and I, I she's so thoughtful with her answers and gives me great answers. It's not five-word answers where like, "Oh yeah, it's a lot of fun." I mean, even even the really quick question that had 30 seconds What's your favorite country you've been able to travel to? And where would you like to go to next? She told me what the two are. She met Her favorite's Thailand. She loved to go to China. But then she gave me the reasoning for it. She didn't just give me the answer. I love being able to chat with Daria. And she thanked me for pronouncing her last name right. And I'd imagine it's got to be hard being having a, a a name that Americans aren't used to. It's spelled Payak, Payjack. And actually, if you're familiar with uh, oh, Who We Are in the Shadows, the TV show, they actually mentioned Daria I think last season. I think the episode aired in like December or November, and they actually referenced her on the show as a Polish bowler. It was, I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't get a chance to talk to her about that. But I just, I have to get the names right. I just, I have to. It would, it would even if I wasn't a bowler, I would research the ever-loving you-know-what out of it just to make sure I was right because it would stress me out that I wasn't right or if I had it wrong. I think I need to relax a little bit and not get stressed out. But I, I just... With a name like Jimenez... For me, I, I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. I'm not gonna say it bothers me, but if I were a celebrity and my name got butchered a lot, yeah, it'd probably start bugging me a lot. So I got you, Daria. <laughs> we got more sports talk on the other side after news break. Dominic Mendez, this is Sports Byline USA Broadcast Network.
12: I'm Richard Johnson. From coast to coast, winter is not over in California. That means more rain on the coast and more snow in the mountains. NBC correspondent Nalia Charles is in the small town of Pajaro, California, near where a levee broke last week, inundating farmland.
5: This rain is going to the same place as it came on Friday, which led to that levee breach. If, although it's not as much rain expected, that's still detrimental because there's already existing flooding here. Highways have been closed, roads have been closed, damage to homes
13: and evacuation orders.
12: At the south end of Lake Tahoe, city officials are asking people to stop harassing snowplow drivers They say people are throwing things at their plows and blocking their paths. There's so much snow in South Lake Tahoe, they're running out of places to put it. In the Northeast, thousands are already without power as a strong nor'easter will dump as much as 8 inches of snow in New York's Hudson Valley and a lot of rain around New York City. Staying warm and dry fueled a big part of the new inflation number. The consumer price index rose by four-tenths of one percent last month. Over the course of a year, it's up by six percent. The price of fuel dropped, but the price of shelter rose. The Wall Street Journal reports the Justice Department's joined the investigation into the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Justice is reportedly focusing on stock sales by the bank's executives before last week's collapse. President Biden set to unveil a new set of executive orders dealing with guns.
5: What he will sign today is a landmark executive order that will bring the United States government as close as we possibly can be without legislation to universal background checks.
12: Biden domestic policy advisor Susan Rice says the order will, among other things, raise public awareness of red flag laws in 19 states. The president will sign the executive orders in Monterey Park, California, scene of mass shootings back in January. This is USA News.
14: Non-attorney spokesperson. Ad sponsored by OpenJar Concepts. Attention veterans and active duty military. If you were issued earplugs between 2002 and 2016 and were diagnosed with hearing loss or ringing in the ears, you may be entitled to compensation. The manufacturer of these military earplugs recently paid $9.1 million to resolve claims that their earplugs were defective, potentially exposing service members to damaging sound levels that could have resulted in hearing loss or tinnitus. If you or a loved one were issued earplugs and were diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss, don't wait. You fought for this country, and our attorneys want to fight for you. Call 800-958-2145 now for a free legal consultation and to see if you may be eligible to file a claim. Time restrictions may apply, and you pay nothing unless there's a recovery in your favor. So call 800-958-2145 now. Again, 800-958-2145. That's 800-958-2145.
12: Pushback to fears by many in the U.S.A. about traveling to Mexico. Its president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, says Mexico is safer than the U.S., He also complained about what he called a campaign by conservative U.S. politicians against Mexico. Texas recently advised against people going there in the wake of the deaths of two tourists who just entered Mexico from Brownsville. Two lawmakers want the State Department to issue a warning about a different kind of drug problem coming from Mexico counterfeit prescription pills.
7: Edward Markey of Massachusetts and David Trone of Maryland are pointing to an investigation by the Los Angeles Times into Mexican pharmacies. It shows more than 70% of pills sold to the newspaper's investigators were contaminated by fentanyl, methamphetamine, and other powerful drugs. Experts say life-threatening drugs have become a major issue as growing numbers of Americans cross the border each year to buy
12: cheaper medications. I'm Skip Kelly. The federal government is suing the drugstore chain Rite Aid, accusing it and some employees of ignoring obvious red flags when it came to opioid prescriptions. The complaint says in the late teens, Rite Aid pharmacists filled hundreds of thousands of prescriptions for controlled substances that were medically unnecessary or that should have aroused suspicions. And Rite Aid is not alone. Several states have sued Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart over similar claims. I'm Richard Johnson, USA News.
3: Welcome back, another hour of titillating sports. Dominic Jimenez doing what I do, filling in for Ricky T. Coming up next, we've got J.D. Sharp, of pro wagering, continuing our descent into madness. I mean, discussion about March madness. My bad. I, I got it mixed up. I host a podcast called Existential Crisis with Dominic Jimenez. No, I'm just kidding. Although I feel like that would be a hit. I'm pretty sure it's already a show, also. It has to be. It's got to be something at least similar where just it's millennials and Gen Zers talking about existential crises that they have. Uh, this show is not that. We're going to be talking sports. Uh, again, five minutes, JD Sharp. And in about half an hour at 40 after the hour, Karen Lyle will be joining us from, actually, London? England? I forget. I think London. I know she's in England. I think it's London. There we go. And she's got a guest uh, for sales, sport, Talk, so I will hand the reins over to her and she will... Uh, do that interview and then we'll come back and wrap up the hour but in the middle there at 25 after you can give me a call 1-800-878-PLAY 1-800-878-7529 thank you however you might be listening would like to welcome you into the show or welcome you back to the show whatever however much time you spend listening and hanging out with me I'm greatly appreciative of it And uh, to everybody listening on the American Forces Radio Network, if you're in our uh, American, part of the American Forces, thank you so much for what you do, because I am sitting here in a studio in San Francisco with wet pants, talking about sports, and I would not have that opportunity without your dedication and bravery, so thank you for that. No, I didn't wet my pants, I take public transit. And the rain was raining sideways today because it was windy. So my pants, a lot of rainwater. I'm Dominic Jimenez, still in sports.
4: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
7: let's keep making money together
8: now more of titillating sports with guest host dominic jimenez
3: Welcome back to the show. Dominique Menez here with you. 10 after in the third hour. You know what that means. It's time for our friends from ProWagering to join us at ProWagering.com. And today, again, it's J.D. Sharp welcoming him back to the show. Talk a little more NCAA. The game's... Start today, JD, so and and all the listeners, if you haven't filled out your bracket, you better hurry up and do it now, otherwise you're going to look like a cheater filling it out after they start. We've got two games today, Pitt, Mississippi State, and we've also got SEMO and Corpus Christi, JD, Southeast Missouri State and Texas A&M Corpus Christi. I'm sure you're all in on this game,
16: right? Honestly, this is a game that I've been researching heavily for the last two days. I know every player. I know all their stats. I've gone (laughs) through all their – I'm kidding. No, I have have absolutely no interest in this game whatsoever. I'm not going to do anything with it. However, I do have a play on uh, Mississippi State-Pitt. And really, it's it's Pitt. It's Pitt plus 2.5. The lines move from 1.5 to Uh, 2.5. It's very simple. Mississippi State is very athletic. They're big. They go about nine deep. They play in the SEC, but they just cannot score. They, they, they literally can't shoot. And I don't care how good of defense you play, if you cannot put the ball in the hoop and you consistently turn it over and you foul on top of that, the chance of you beating a team like a pit, who actually, they just got blown up by Duke. I think they lost, what, 96 to 69? They lost like 37 points in the Big East tournament or the ACC, ACC tournament. So I, I think that Pitt is going to score not quite at will, but a lot more than Mississippi State can score. They don't foul as much. Uh, they have better guard play, and they've still got uh, Federico inside the seven footer who can match with Tolu Smith. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going to take Pitt tonight plus two and a half.
3: Now, when it comes to the at least the first round, there are so many games. Once the bracket comes out, do you kind of identify some games that off the bat are interesting to you and then you check in on them as it gets closer to game time? Or do you kind of just look at all each game before it happens? Because I'd imagine it can get a little chaotic trying to do it game by game and kind of keep an eye on multiple games like that leading up to game time. What's your approach when you bet on the first round of the tournament?
16: Well, the first round of the tournament, I generally don't go anything above one unit. Because so many different things can happen, and the handicaps are unique. A lot of the teams get better. You, you know, you can say that okay, Team X played a Quadrant One opponent in you know in the first month of the season they lost by 25 points, but did that team get a lot better over the next three months? Most likely. So, and, and it's really tough to make that type of make that type of handicap or that type of comparison between the two teams in a, in a head-to-head scenario, when or even like a head-to-head to teams that are very similar, like the team that they're playing in that type of scenario, because you, you just, they haven't played a team of that caliber in X amount of time. Yes. But on the other side, they could have gotten a lot better. So oh yeah, I stick to one unit. I do love handicapping the games. Although this year it's kind of tough because you know you got McColler for, for Kansas who may play, may not. He's the big total defensive player of the year. So obviously he needs to play. Sasser may play, may not. Uh, you've got three or four major injuries in college hoops this year that have a in my opinion, a pretty big impact on, on what could happen in this tournament. But no, yeah, so I'm probably going to have like six or eight plays. I've already got, just, uh, just just to put it out there, I've got UC Santa Barbara uh, plus 10.5. I've got or- Oral Roberts plus 6.5. I think Oral Roberts cannot just beat Duke. I think they can make the Elite Eight. Uh, Oral Roberts, they still got Max A. Smith, who was on that team three years ago, who had, you know, average like 23 to 25 points a game. Uh, they still have three or four other guards. They go about eight deep, but they've got uh, Connor Van over their center. is Seven foot five, two hundred and thirty pounds. He shoots thirty eight percent from three, eighty two percent from the foul line. He plays thirty two minutes a game. He's like Zach Eady, not as big, but a much better shooter, a much more dynamic threat on the outside. So, I think that this Duke team just played really well to end the season. I think Duke actually goes down in in, in the first game, and people are talking about they're going to win the region and this and that. Duke is full of freshmen. Uh, Shire has not coached in this type of environment before I I think Duke is is in trouble this tournament so no I like Will Roberts I like Santa Barbara Uh, I think Montana State has a legitimate chance to beat Kansas State and another injury that we haven't talked about is North Shadow Mirror for uh, for Miami if he doesn't play Miami's going to get blown out by Drake even if he does play I think Darnell Brody who's 6'10 280 pounds is big enough that he can compete so uh, I wouldn't be shocked at all if uh, Drake beat Miami as well. But I'm not going to have a uh, – it's not going to be a situation where I'm going to bet 10 to 15 games. I'll go one unit per game, probably 6 to 8, maybe 10 games at most, and a couple of totals will be in there. I'm, I'm kind of looking at Don Zagger Grand Canyon, Under. They both played pretty good defense as of late. They've slowed down their pace of play. so I, I could see that hitting. Um, but, yeah, now when it comes to the second round, Sweet 16 – Elite Eight, Final Four, you know, and obviously the championship game. That's when I'll start having those major plays, those two to five unit plays on a pretty consistent basis. So that that's kind of my approach. Is I don't want to bury, you know, I don't want to bear anybody early. I'm hoping to go maybe you know six and two, five and three, something like that to start get a good get a, get a good get a good grasp or everything from a betting standpoint. But then also I'm still filling out you know six to eight brackets and the teams I think that I, I think Arizona has a really good chance to win it all. Um, we'll see if USC beats Michigan State. I think they have a chance to beat Marquette, but if Michigan State beats USC, I think Marquette will beat Michigan State. So it, there's just there's a number of different uh, variables you have to factor, and that's why I'm doing five different brackets. But yeah, from a from a betting perspective, I, I keep it light for the most part in the first round, and then I'll ramp that up as as the games go on.
3: Now, now that you've mentioned you've done a few different brackets, I have to ask: are with these different brackets, are are you doing? Obviously, you have some games that you feel very confident in, but do you kind of hedge it and, and have very similar brackets with maybe a different national champion, or do you go five almost completely
16: different brackets? What's your strategy
3: to b- filling out a bracket like that?
16: Yeah, I mean, there's so sort of, there, there's a couple of games like um, UC Santa Barbara, Baylor. I could see that going either way. I could see Baylor. I think you, I think Santa Barbara covers for sure, but I, I don't think Baylor's going to beat them by fifteen. But if Baylor wins a game, I think that Baylor could beat Creighton, for example. And I think Creighton's going to beat NC State. So in a situation like that, if there's a, if there's a matchup in the next game, or like, let's say, uh, Auburn-Iowa, right? I don't think either of those teams is going to beat Houston with a healthy Sasser. Now, without a healthy Sasser, that changes things. So my bracket's, good, my bracket's not going to change. But obviously, if Sasser isn't playing, if Auburn beats Iowa and Auburn plays Houston next week, or plays Houston on Sunday, I think that Auburn has a chance to beat Houston if Sasser isn't playing because they match up pretty well. One thing, one thing, Houston has is, is great depth, but Sasser is—you know—he's a first-team All-American. Obviously, he has to play. So, in a, in a game like that, if let's say that Sasser—I knew Sasser was playing and he wasn't hurt—what I would do is I would I would take Auburn in one, Iowa in the other one, and I would take Houston over both of them in, in the next round.
3: There you go. We got a couple minutes with JD Sharp of ProWageringProWagering dot Pro to keep it on the hard hardwood, but uh, we'll go to the pros. I want to get your thoughts, JD, on the MVP conversation because there's a lot of different, and I'm going to use a sports trigger word, narratives uh, out there that Nikola Jokic should win the MVP, which is valid. The they haven't the voters haven't gotten the burnout yet, but they've also said. Joel Embiid's going to lose the and maybe even Giannis they're going to lose because they're black and the voters hate black guys out of all the things you could they could, they could have come up with all the storylines they could have come up with as to why Jokic is going to win that was very far down on my list. It's it's absurd, but we're even having talking heads on national television say that. JD, it, it's absurd. He's gonna win because he's that good, right?
16: Absolutely. I mean, and, and I, it, I'm, it's pretty. It, it was kind of surprising that JJ Reddick went out and and said what he said and called out. I believe it was Kendrick Perkins who who, who was making statements like that. And if you look at Nikola Jokic's stats, first of all, the Nuggets are, yeah, they've lost a couple of games in a row, but they're number one or number two in the West. He's averaging 24.8 points a game. He's number two or three in rebounds. He's averaging 10.2 assists a game. He's shooting 63% from the field. He's shooting 85% from the free throw line and 41% from three. No one's ever had a triple-double and put up those type of numbers on a winning team before. And yes, it's 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 most likely going to be his third MVP in a row, but he absolutely deserves to win the MVP. Mm -hmm. And it's not because he happens to be Caucasian. If Joel Embiid was averaging even 27, 11, 8, and 4 blocks, and the Sixers were the number one team in the East, then I think you could probably have the exact same conversation. And B just doesn't have the stats to match up with what Jokic is doing, and and it's not like and and Jokic actually he, he was attacked today because he has been called for you know because he's he's not very quick obviously, mm-hmm. and so what he does defensively is he he kicks the ball when he gets a chance to when he thinks there's when 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 someone's you know making a pass past him. That's most likely going to result in points. He, he puts his leg out there and he kicks the ball. He gets a kickball violation. Mm-hmm. He's got 45 of those. He has the most in, in the NBA. And People are calling him lazy. And really what he's doing is he's just being resourceful. He's playing good strengths. But he also averages 1.2 steals a game now. Embiid averages 1.1. Embiid obviously you know blocks more shots, but... As far as and, and let's keep in mind that Jokic has never had an all-star teammate ever in his career. Embiid plays with James Harden. He's had several all-star teammates. He's had Tobias Harris, who's an all-star as well. So I, I just I think that this this narrative that, that Nicole Jokic is only going to win the MVP because, because he's Caucasian and and the voters um are only going to vote for or are are in some in some way racist against players that, that happen to not be white. Uh, in an in NBA which happens to be 80% not white, then I, I think that that is a completely ridiculous narrative, and the stats definitely back it up. Now, also, a player named DeMontis Sabonis, who plays for the Kings. Mm-hmm. The Kings are maybe number three or four in the West. I mean, he had 24, 17, and 15 last night. Yeah, they lost to the, to the Bucks, and Giannis had 46 and 12, and he played a fantastic game. But these these Euro players who are you know, these seven-foot centers who have these guard skills, because they're taught to play all the positions over there, they, they, and and Sabonis is actually, you know, he's Arvidas's son, obviously, mm. but he's a much better athlete than than Nikola Jokic. He's he's probably got yes. like ten percent body fat. He's about six or seven foot, you know, two forty, two fifty. He's a he's a he's kind of he's kind of a beast down there. But he also was a good shooter and a good passer. So, there's, but there's more players, and even Alperen Sengun, who is, I want to say, he is uh, Hispanic, but he plays for the Rockets, and he's kind of having that 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 type, type of career trajectory where he's averaging fourteen points a game. He's only in the second year. And about nine assists, seven boards, but he's, he's kind of in that same capacity where he's 6'11", seven foot, can shoot, can pass, can dribble, doesn't play great D, but is a real threat uh, offensively. So I think that you're seeing more of these players emerge, and so there's a real chance that players like the goalie Oakage, these these players that are, that, that, are that, that seven foot who have the, we'll call it the, the five-tool skill set, in the NBA, are going to keep putting up these very, very gaudy numbers and, and averaging close to a triple double. And if they're playing for a winning team, they're going to be considered for the MVP. That's that's just the way it's going to be.
3: Hundred percent in agreement with you. Last year, I would have been fine if Embiid had won uh, the MVP, but this year, it's hard. It's almost like with Russ. How could you? He had a triple double. How could you not give it to him? And it's not like he's averaging 11, 10 and ten. Nicole Jokic is going to be the MVP. Uh, J.D. Sharp, Pro ProWagering exactly. and ProWagering.com. We'll talk it again tomorrow, talk a little more hoop and maybe a little baseball. Thanks, J.D. Take care.
16: Hey, thanks a lot, Don.
3: No problem. That is J.D. Sharp, Pro ProWagering and ProWagering.com. we got an open segment coming up on the other side here. 1-800-878-PLAY, 1-800-878-7529, and Sales Sport Talk will close things down, for the most part, at 40 after. I'm Dominic Jimenez. This is Taito Lightning Sports.
0: That's 800-725-1651. Paid for by Legal Alert Line.
5: If you're moving to another state, you're getting a fresh start in a brand new town. And when you choose a moving company to help get your valuable possessions to that new home of yours, you want somebody that's going to take care of your things like you would. That's why you need to call Colonial Van Lines. They're America's number one moving company for a reason. Because they'll take care of your things like they would their possessions. They'll use caution so nothing gets damaged. And they won't treat you like a number. They'll treat you like a friend. And when you call now on a qualified move across state lines, they'll give you a $250 discount.
8: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back to the show. Dominic Jimenez here. We have an open segment before I hand things off to Karen Lyle and Salesport Talk a little bit later. She's in London, and I learned this today. They don't do daylight savings there. So when we sprung forward... London stayed the same, and she—it uh, was just miscommunication on the timing. I didn't know that. Karen didn't know it either, and she's over there, so uh, we'll get her and sales, talk squared up proper in the next segment. One 878 play one eight hundred eight seven eight seven five two nine is the number to call right now, and we can talk some sports, please, anyone. Has anyone out there listening to me? All right. Uh, Robbie Gold, at this point, longtime Niners kicker, has basically said he's going to leave in free agency. He's thankful to the 49ers, the organization, all that good stuff. He appreciates it. Thank you for his time here. But uh, he's going to move on. So he's the Niners need a kicker. And I was looking at free agent kickers, and one of the things about the kicker position is it feels like it's always a retread. Like so many times I've seen a kicker on a new team. I'm like, I didn't know he was on that team. I remember him when he was on that team. I think of Cairo Santos has been on a a handful of different teams. A guy like Eddie Pinheiro has been on a handful of teams. It just, there are certain kickers that are good, definitely good enough to be in the league. But they're not great, and when they are unable to be consistently great, they get cut, they go to a different team, because they do have a track record of success, just not quite the track record of excellence. So I was looking at the free agent kickers. Who who can the Niners... I obviously focused on me, because that's what I do. I only think about myself. I was focused on, hmm, what, what can the Niners do? Who can the Niners get? And one of the names on the list, I was all in for the Niners trying to go get. Because I think the kicker position is vastly underrated to an extent. We've seen what happens when a starting kicker gets hurt. The backup or a backup comes in. It's not the same. We've seen what happens to a team that does well but has a bad kicker. Look what happened to Brett Marr. He's a good kicker, but what happens when things go south? Things go south. The kicker position is extremely valuable. Do the Patriots win all those Super Bowls if they have a lesser kicker than Adam Vinatieri? Or Sebastian Goskowski, for that matter? Probably not. Not as many, at least. Yeah, they still had Tom Brady. But those
13: kickers...
3: Our clutch, Justin Tucker's clutch. He has helped his team win. Harrison Butker's clutch. He's helped his team win. And the guy that I wanted my 49ers to go get is also a clutch kicker, but he has signed with the Indianapolis Colts. Matt Gay receives the largest free agent contract ever given to a kicker. Now, yes, it's it's a lot of money, but by other contract standards, it's tame. But according to the NFL Network, Colts have signed him, or will be signing him, former Rams kicker, to a four-year deal worth $22.5 million, which is the second largest contract ever given to a kicker, but it's the largest ever given to a kicker in free agency uh, because Justin Tucker's four-year $24 million extension was signed as an extension, not with him being a free agent. Now, Matt Gay's got a good leg, but he's accurate. When the Rams won the Super Bowl in 2021, he hit 94% of his field goals, which was behind Justin Tucker. Matt Gay also went 48-49 of from extra point. And remember the extra point? Not as easy as it once was. So 48-49, of you'll take that any day, any season, any time. And he ended up getting a Pro Bowl appearance and a Super Bowl win out of it. And he had two clutch kicks getting them to the Super Bowl. Um, he had a game winner against the Bucks, And he ended up hitting the game winner against my Niners in the championship. He was good in 2022 this past season. Hit 93% of his field goals. Which was fourth in the NFL. Who attempted five or more field goals. And he only missed two. 28 of 32 in 2022. I'm so sorry. He was 28 of 30. This past season. And one of those misses came from 61 yards out. So that's why sometimes the percentages are extremely misleading. Oh yeah, he kicked 93%. Well, technically he went 28 for 30. And one of the ones he missed was a 60 yarder. 61 yarder. I think at that point it's a little forgivable. But you can see why I wanted the 49ers to sign him. You, the numbers are there. He's very, very good. That's that's what I wanted to see. Not going to get it with the 49ers. Congrats to Matt Gay. He actually is returning to Indianapolis. He was drafted by Tampa in 2019. The Bucs cut him. He signed with the Colts practice squad. But the Rams signed him to their active roster off the practice squad and he had been in Los Angeles since Where do the Niners go from here? I, I don't know. Brett Maher's is a free agent. Eddie Pinheiro, the guy I mentioned, he's a free agent, but I I don't I don't know what the 49ers are going to do, but for a team that is as good as the 49ers are, I think it is imperative that they have a good kicker. One of the, Robbie Gold's been their most reliable player since he's been here. And that's not hyperbole. That's a fact. Robbie Gold has been fantastic as a 49er. And I just hope that whoever they bring in, hope they can live up to what Robbie Gold was able to do. Because again, if you have a bad kicker. We've seen a lot of games. They come down to the wire, comes down to a clutch kick, and some kickers got it, some kickers don't. Robbie Gold, one of those kickers that does got it. And like, even if Robbie Gould didn't want to actively leave the 49ers, I would have been okay if he did leave because he, he's getting up there in age and doesn't have quite the same power he once did. Those 50-plus yarders, uh, not as easy as they once were for him. But congrats to Matt Gay. Got paid in free agency. I'm done to a minute, Sales Sport Talk with Karen Lyle coming up next.
9: This is Karen Lyle of Salesport Talk and I'm here with James Balls who is the Executive Director of the Armed Forces Equine Charity. James it's such a pleasure to have you here on the show.
15: It's an absolute pleasure to be here thank you for inviting me.
9: And last night you had such a marvelous event where you gathered together people to recognize this beautiful charity that gives hope and inspiration to people who were in the Armed Forces who might have PTSD or other struggles that they're dealing with and it relates to horses. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
15: Yes so the dinner Dinner was at the Saddler's Livery Hall, a great place for us as an equine charity to hold a, a dinner. We had 130 guests who really were just informing them of, of what we're up and doing at the moment, which is you've hit it on the head already, we use horses to help people. Um question. Never have been in a question, but I have served in the British military for thirty seven years and I've seen what it's done for servicemen around the world, globally, American servicemen as well as a British servicemen, European servicemen, NATO servicemen, and those who are struggling with anxiety and stress, the horse doesn't judge you, the horse doesn't make any criticisms of you, the horse is about connecting with the horse and to connect with the horse. If I tap my leg to my dog, my dog will come to me. If I tap my leg to a horse, it'll run away. You've got to make that connection. So you've got to let rid of the anxiety and stress that's in your body to make the connection. And that is the turning point at which therapy, recovery and rehabilitation can start happening.
9: And you had a a woman there that was recognized in part of your awards for the charity, the lovely red hair from Scotland. She and I talked a little bit. She had such an inspiring story of how her life was transformed. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how this charity had an impact on her life and what she's done?
15: So it's a sad story, but it's a a good story. So her husband, uh, Alan, um, was referred to us by the national health system um, he had tried to take his own life uh, a serviceman struggling to deal with what he had experienced he'd never met horses before he came to us with completely gray completely shut off and after a week with us um, he had fundamentally changed at the time i didn't hadn't met jenny the lady you met um, i hadn't realized of course that the ptsd gets into the family a bit like everything does and she was suicidal as well and she saw a change in her husband which gave her hope um Obviously, Alan's recovery was going really, really well. But Jenny and Alan's connection with horses helped. But more than that, Jenny continues to bake cakes, to get up every day, to go to our cafe where most of our beneficiaries we help go. And she talks to them. And she was, without doubt, when I went to the trustees and said, look, this has to be our winner in 2022, 2023. It was unanimous. She is a very special lady, and we, we encourage the most senior uh, military person who's, a, who's from Scotland you know, to come and present that award. One of those people in life just gives more than they take. You know, fantastic lady.
9: And we'll have a page for you on Salesport Talk. Thank you so much for coming on the show. certainly appreciate it.
15: Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure.
9: This is Karen Lyle of Salesport Talk and I have the privilege of being here with the Rear Commodore of the Royal Thames Yacht Club, John Reddy.
13: Hello. Rear Commodore sailing, actually.
9: That's right, because your club has three rear commodores, which is unusual for clubs in the United States, but has been that way for almost how many years?
13: Well, the club was started in 1775. I don't think you can go back to that uh, age, but certainly uh, within living memory, we've had a vice-commodore who is the big cheese, and then the three rear commodores who are house and finance, membership, and sailing, that's me.
9: And you got into sailing and and joined the Royal Thames Club because of team racing, is that right?
13: Team racing, yes. For those of you who don't know, if you see yachts racing out on the water or little dinghies racing out on the water, you normally assume that the one in the lead is winning the race. But team racing, you have three or two boats from a club racing against three or two boats from another club. So hence team racing. In the States, you are more likely to be racing three-on-three, and over here in England, you are more likely to be racing two-on-two, but we both do both in both countries.
9: So tell us a little bit about the new fleet of boats that you are going to be adding to the Royal Thames Yacht Club, which is very exciting for all of the racers, and how many people sail on that boat and how it works.
13: Yes, the Royal Thames is very excited that we had a fleet of rather aging J-80s. For those of you who understand what I mean, they are 8-meter little, well, not so little keelboats. But they were getting a bit long in the tooth. So a couple of years ago, the club made a fairly momentous decision and put in an order for 12 new sonars. And sonars are 21-foot keelboat, main jib and spinnaker. So that's the the three sails. And they will be raced, or they are normally raced, by four people. So in a race of two-on-two, we need eight people from the club and obviously three on three, 12 from the club. And having 12 boats, it gives us the flexibility for three lots of four or two lots of six racing at the same time.
9: Do you have a diverse group of sailors as far as age and gender?
13: So the Roll Thames set about becoming probably the UK's leading team racing club because it recognised that this was a way to attract young members into the club. It's quite normally the case that universities race three-on-three, so they team race, and universities are quite used to travelling between universities, and each university will have a fleet of its own boats. So you're not having to drag a boat around the country. You go and sail at the other university using their boats. Now if if like me they leave university at the age of 21 22 and are desperate to not give up this wonderful sport that they probably had not come, up, uh, come across until they went to university then here was their opportunity many graduates leave university they come work in london and we've welcomed them into the royal thames with some very, very competitive membership fees for the young. They do go up fairly quickly as they get older and hopefully more successful. But there was a way to continue their favoured sport by joining in with our club and racing in our J80s, but now soon to be racing in our new Sonar's.
9: Tell us a little bit about the sailing environment, the wind, currents, tides in your sailing area.
13: Right. Well, the sonars will be sailed at a big reservoir called Queen Mary Reservoir, Queen Mary Sailing Club. Now, not many of you will probably know where that is, but you will probably all know where Heathrow Airport is, and it's a stone's throw from there. In fact, as you sail around between the races and perhaps not concentrating so much, we see the planes landing and taking off. Being a reservoir, it's inland water, but it's raised, I'm just trying to think, probably 50 or 60 feet above the ambient level of the ground around it. So the wind tends to be not too bad, normally. If the level of the reservoir drops a bit and we've then got rather nasty concrete sides around us, it can get a little shifty. But it's the same shifts for everybody, and it's amazing how the... Good teams seem to cope with the shifts better than the not so good teams.
9: That's a little bit of the sport.
13: That is indeed. And um, there are many of us who sail on rivers, uh, and obviously they are considerably shiftier, uh, and other inland waters. So, Queen Mary Sailing Club has always prized itself as being the best sea sailing in London.
9: Well, I am Karen Lyle, and I'm here on Sail Sport Talk on Sports Byline, broadcasting to 100 million people in 168 countries, including the Armed Forces, privileged to be speaking with Rear Commodore of Sailing of the Royal Thames Yacht Club, John Redding. And John, tell us a little bit about the upcoming anniversary you have and what day the public might be able to plan ahead for.
13: Right, well, 1775, the club can take its history back to, and that was the year when the Duke of Cumberland, who I think at the time was the king's brother, decided to get a group of his uh, wealthy aristocrats to sail together and race together, sorry, race against each other on the Thames, 1775. So if you're quick at your maths, you'll realise that 2025 is our 250th anniversary, which is a big milestone in anybody's uh, reckoning. We've got a raft of events coming up, uh, parties galore, but our big sailing spectacle, certainly here in London, is going to be the, the, the pageant at the end of June 2025. We are hoping that many of our members will bring their yachts around from the south coast, they'll sail them up the Thames and arrive just by the Tower Bridge, which, again, you probably many of you will have seen pictures of. And the boats will, the yachts will then go through that Tower Bridge. They'll parade around in the basin beyond the Tower Bridge and then go back again uh, down to the, the old Naval Academy at Greenwich. So if any of you are around London on the 28th, 29th of June... I can't be specific with the dates because it's clearly slightly wind and well so wind dependent uh, in conjunction with tides Uh, but it will be on one of those days and we are hoping for a great spectacle right in the heart of London or right in the heart of the city of London which is the financial centre.
9: Well and what a marvellous accomplishment I think that the Royal Thames Yacht Club is the oldest continuing yacht club in the world is that correct?
13: We do like to pride ourselves that we are the oldest continuing yacht club. There's certainly clubs who have had their 300th anniversary, uh, and um, but I think they've had breaks in their continuity where we have, fortunately, been able to keep ourselves going through thick and thin, certainly two world wars, um, ooh, the Crimea as well, so at some, some fairly tough times. But the club which started as the Cumberland Fleet, as it was called, morphed into the Royal Thames Yacht Club and is still, luckily, going very strong.
9: And is certainly known the world throughout uh, with many reciprocal clubs that you race against and that come and race for you, uh, against you, I guess it would be.
13: (laughs) Indeed. One of our great prides is our reciprocal uh, club, which is the worst expression, book, I suppose. And we enjoy very much our relations with our reciprocal clubs, the New York Yacht Club, Swanica, um, San Francisco, name a few of the American clubs, and members enjoy going out to these uh, clubs. They will perhaps race with other club members there, or, and I bring it back to this team racing, we can send a team of eight, 12 people out to race against the same number over there, and, Of course, it engenders huge friendships. As an example, I'm going myself to Sweden at the end of May. And there are two American teams who will be competing in Stockholm. And um, certainly I know a lot of the guys who will, well, the guys and ladies who will be sailing at that event. And I like to consider that they are now good friends because I've met them at at this event for two, three, four times and team racing just brings that friendship on.
9: Tell me how you got started in team racing and what really <sighs> turned it into a passion for you.
13: Yes well like probably many of the young I went to university and didn't, had never team raced and there was my university Nottingham which was Uh, scheduled to race against some other university i can't remember the first one and um we had some trials and i took to it i think the expression like a duck to water and raced through my university years and at the end of it i really could not abide the idea of giving up this wonderful sport so i set about creating a ex-university club called nottingham outlaws um no prizes there for originality but it seemed to work and that kept me going uh, through the years for for probably far too long but um eventually I did give up age did weary this particular soul because in those days I was sailing dinghies and the young quite rightly got better than me so it was time to move on
9: well and now keelboats for you
13: so 10 years ago, yes, 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to join the Royal Thames and unashamedly, I knew that they were very active in the team of the races, the sport of team racing. And so I joined really predominantly for that reason. It's been fantastic because I have met so many of the the members of my age who have continued to team race younger members and, of course, many of the the young members who I now enjoy team racing with and will be team racing with in Stockholm and uh, other venues which are coming up later in the year. There's always a clamour for places at these events, particularly if they involve sunshine and um, or just good fun. And so they're, they're, the places are hard to come by, but that's great because... If they're competitive, people teammates better.
9: Well, and you've also been instructing, and so having giving the sharing the joy of sailing with many many, many others.
13: I have done a little bit of well, it's a reasonable amount of instructing. I instructed as a um, as a young man uh, at a sailing school, and then, as an older um, a father, I got involved in in a in a sailing club up in North Wales where my wife and I have a house. And for my sins, I was put onto the oppy teaching course. Now, luckily, I am of a size that I can still get into an Oppie, which was fine because actually, if you can get the the young children, eight or nine, to follow you, I think they learn much quicker than having someone shouting at them, saying "pull the rope this way" or "push the stick that way," and it worked very well. Now, upwind, my technique. Enabled me to keep ahead of them. Downwind, for those of you who do sail, it was a little trickier because I was somewhat heavier than they were, and they tended to overtake me. But uh, that was great fun. Many years doing that, and I wouldn't have missed Wouldn't have missed it for the world, to be honest. It was great fun. Uh, yeah.
9: Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you sharing your passion for sailing and having the opportunity to feature the Royal Thames Yacht Club, who started that whole yacht club scene for us.
13: Absolutely. 1775. For those of you who are in London, come and see us. We are right next to the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Knightsbridge. So um, very close to Harrods.
9: Thank you.
0: That's 800-725-1651. Paid for by Legal Alert Line.
5: If you're moving to another state, you're getting a fresh start in a brand new town. And when you choose a moving company to help get your valuable possessions to that new home of yours, you want somebody that's going to take care of your things like you would. That's why you need to call Colonial Van Lines. They're America's number one moving company for a reason. Because they'll take care of your things like they would their possessions. They'll use caution so nothing gets damaged. And they won't treat you like a number. They'll treat you like a friend. And when you call now on a qualified move across state lines, they'll give you a $250 discount
8: Listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: All right, let's close this thing down, shall we? Yes, we shall. Talking with Rick a little bit about the Raiders earlier, mentioned the Jimmy Garoppolo deal, the signing, told him that they had signed Jacoby Myers, which he hadn't seen yet. And during Salesport talk, it came out that the Raiders are making another move. They are trading Pro Bowl tight end Darren Waller to the New York Giants for a third-round pick. Surprising. Now, I had Darren Waller on my fantasy team last year, so I know how he barely played at all due to injuries. But you think there are only a handful of tight ends I would rather have when healthy than Darren Waller. So getting a third-round pick is only only getting a third-round pick for him is a little surprising. I, I would have imagined they could get a second out of Waller or a third and a sixth or something like that. But he's heading to the Giants. And it's going to be weird because Darren Waller got married, I think, last weekend, not a couple days ago, so like nine days ago, to Las Vegas Aces star basketball player Kelsey Plum. So their honeymoon looks like it might be moving Darren Waller across the country. I'm just kidding. I'm sure they're going to have a very lovely regular honeymoon, but that's going to be... You know, that's the thing about uh, we we, they never talk about in sports is the impact on the families when a guy gets traded or cut, released, whatever you want to call it like that. How about that? Newlyweds, less than 10 days. And just like that, they no longer work in the same city together. So is the life of being a professional athlete. The life of being a radio host means the show's over. We'll be back tomorrow, and coming up next, Sempervivi, Alvarez, Wrestling Observer Live. I'm Dominic Jimenez. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
1: Yeah, man, I hope we don't have brain damage. (laughs)
8: Great way to end the show.